have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. What makes a shingle a 40-year shingle, say, as opposed to a 20-year shingle? Let's say one of the obvious elements will be the thickness of the shingle, the thickness of the wearing surface as well. If you compare, if you put them side by side, a basic three-tab shingle that may have a 25-year warranty on it, and you're looking at a 40-year shingle, you're going to find the thickness. Now, also, if you read the technical side of the technical bulletins or information that's on the, the manufacturer's data sheets, you're going to find that the weight of them increased tremendously as you go up in number of years for warranty. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody. I'm Jim Britt along with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, and welcome to another Welcome to another edition of Ken the Contractor. Ken is here weekends at this time to take your calls, questions, and comments. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. And don't forget, uh, you can forward questions to him through our website. That's at KenTheContractor.com. And Ken, I know we're going to talk about uh, what we should be considering for our home right now is some of the nights get a little bit cooler. Yeah, I've talked to a few people lately, and uh, they are reminding me that not only are some of us out there going to long sleeve shirts, maybe a little jacket if you get started very early in the mornings, or perhaps a sweater, and I'm saying, well, what about your home? Have you thought a little bit about what's coming up for that and what you need to be doing? They're saying, no, what do you mean? Well, let's talk a little bit about that. You know, as the weather gets colder, it's more difficult for us to deal with some of the maintenance items. We spend time during, especially late spring, and we get into the summer, and the last thing we want to do is home maintenance. And we're saying, why? We don't have to worry too much about the holes. Critters aren't coming in during the, the summertime necessarily. And uh, so we just go on about our summer life and have a wonderful time, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm here today to remind you there are a few things you probably want to spend a little bit of time with. And if you're like Jim and you're like me and you're out there working six days a week and long hours, the last thing you want to do is go home and worry about plugging holes or cleaning gutters or thinking about leaves falling and clogging up downspouts. But it's a fact, and if we don't deal with it, at some point, we've got to put it in our schedule. If we don't deal with it, we're going to pay somebody to do it later, and typically we're going to have some damage as a result of things that we don't do. So let's take a quick look at some of the items that would be important for us to be thinking about over the next few weeks to do, not just think about, but to do and to take some action on that will help eliminate some costly problems as we move through the fall, which is only about a week away, and the winter season. One of the items that we'll be looking at, and you're already seeing some color and a few trees in our listing area and a few leaves falling here and there, you're going to have a bunch of them, many of you, on your roof and your garages here in the near future. I've had a lot of calls and emails over the course of this last uh, six to seven, eight months, since we've come out of winter anyway, regarding gutter guards. And for those of you that have contacted me, hopefully you have followed up on that and you have made a decision, you've done something that's going to eliminate some work here over the next few weeks. For those of you that you don't, that have not, there are gutter guards that run the gamut from very low price in vinyl that you snap in, you can do yourself, no special tools or knowledge needed, to those that are quite sophisticated that actually secure with fasteners to the roof, that have hinges on them, that raise up. You can find all kinds of gutter guards out in the marketplace. But if you happen to live in a location where you constantly have a large quantity of leaves hitting your roof, ending up in your gutter, I'm going to suggest to you now is a good time while you still have some warm weather and the leaves are still on the trees to think a little bit about gutter guards. You'll save yourself not only a lot of work in cleaning those gutters and cleaning the clogged downspouts, 
But if you don't do it, you're going to save some costs by not having those gutters perhaps pull off the wall, off the fascia rather, this season when they're filled with snow or ice or just, for that matter, heavy rain that sits in those leaves as they decompose. It becomes almost a landfill sitting up there. So these are some things that we don't think about because, for most of us, it's out of sight. So if gutter guards are something that's been on your your mind, you've thought a little bit about it, but it was only a passing thought, now might be a good time for you to consider that. And for most, it's not going to take a lot of time to do it, as I said, unless you happen to have a two-story, three-story home, something extremely tall. If you've got a single story, uh, it's going to be very easy for most homeowners to do. If it's two stories or more, you might want to consider hiring a professional local carpenter, somebody that's insured to come out and do it, but it's not going to be a huge expense for the problems that it can resolve for you. Also, think about sealing these openings. As these nights just recently have become cool. We've been down into the 40s in our listing area. Some have been uh, in the low 40s in the, ma- the higher elevations. But as these nights become a little bit cooler, we got outdoor critters, especially mice, field rats, all of those that start looking for warm places. And if you have some penetrations that are open around condensate lines, a telephone line that may have been installed this year, perhaps you had new cable lines run inside, uh, you had a new plumbing line installed, any of those, If they are not properly sealed, it doesn't take much of an area before you start bringing all these outside folks inside to winter with you. Now, I don't know about you. I like the outside folks just staying where they belong. And so do yourself a favor. Spend a little time just making some basic inspections around your home. And if you're not up to doing this yourself in terms of the repair work, surely you can make the list. And this is simply observing uh, things that have been there for some time where caulking may have separated, mortar joints may have opened up, or where you've had especially new lines installed or service work done during the course of the year. So do yourself a favor, keep those guys outdoors, and you be warm and toasty on the inside. Other areas we tend to forget about happen to be our doors and windows. Take a look at that weather stripping. This happens to be another area that I get a lot of questions, emails about. They will wear. They don't last forever. Just because you put a new door in seven years ago doesn't mean that weather stripping is still sound, especially if you have a threshold with a weather strip, a neoprene strip on the bottom of it. The door should make a tight fit to that. That is a replaceable item. That is going to wear, and you can anticipate all kinds of things, including cold air blowing in, coming in underneath that door if that strip has worn out. Again, we don't pay attention to them until we have a problem. Now's a good time for you to be looking at that. For those of you that have storm windows, check your inventory, especially check the hardware. How often do you go to put storm windows up here another month or so from now only to find, I can't find the fasteners or the devices, the clips that hold them in. Now I've got to special order those in order to use the storm windows you've had for years. Good time would be right now to be checking that inventory. And a couple of other items, and we're going to deal with this in a great deal of detail coming up here over the next few weeks. Uh, but those of you with furnaces only, whether it's an oil furnace uh, that you, that you, in other words, it's not a heat pump where you're going to be running the system 12 months out of the year, whether it's heating or cooling. But now's the time to look at oil furnaces, gas furnaces that have been sitting idle for a number of months. Be sure, one, you have adequate fuel. You still have a little bit of opportunity maybe to play the market to some extent on fuel prices. If they're starting in some areas to drop, although they're not on gasoline just yet, that's anticipated in the near future. You might want to be filling that tank up as you watch that market if those numbers are dropping a little bit, especially if you've got a, a one, two, three hundred gallon tank and you're writing a pretty hefty check for that. So I'd be watching those dollars and cents where you don't need it right now because you know when everybody needs it, those prices tend to spike. So it's a good time maybe to save a couple of dollars. And if you've got a fireplace and you haven't paid any attention to that since your last fire in February or early March, you certainly want to see 
who's built nest on the inside of your chimney these days and whether that's going to function properly. Just some quick items I want you to think about. Pay a little bit of attention to it. Spend some time when you get home this weekend. Make the list. I'm not telling you to go out and do the work. But at least make the list. See what you need so it'll be fresh on your mind. And then take some action over the next few weeks while you've still got the sun and the temperature to do these things. I'm real good at making those lists. It's just actually doing the stuff around the house. Ken Patterson is here to take your calls and questions. He is Ken the Contractor. Don't forget, if you've got a question about your home inside or out, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. And don't forget, you can forward your questions to our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. A house is what you build. A home is what you make it. We'll take a quick break and come right back with more. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Well, welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Britt along with Ken the Contractor. Phone lines are open. If you have a question about your home inside or out, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. And don't forget, you can also post questions online at KenTheContractor.com. We've got a couple of those mailbag questions. And here's a rather basic one from Amanda Ken. And it's uh, concerns uh, Amanda has about installing a security door first for our listeners to find what type of door she's talking about. Well, let me read the email, and then I have to make some assumptions when I get emails from each of you. So if you are sending me information that in your mind it's very clear, but look, you know, you look at it again and say, maybe he doesn't quite follow that. Give me a little more detail so that the answer I give you is based on your true question. I don't want to steer you in the wrong direction. And what Amanda sends to us, she says, there have been burglaries in our neighborhood, and we want to install security doors Will we need to reinforce the door frames somehow? Now, Amanda, I'm making this assumption that you're talking about a what some would call a gate, maybe a wrought iron gate, uh, along on the exterior of your primary door. And in uh, areas of the country where we have greater tendency for burglaries and, and so forth, it's not uncommon to see these on both doors and windows. And I have my, frankly, I have concerns about installing them in all locations. But for your benefit, Amanda, if this is what you're talking about, you may have to reinforce that door. You know, I can't see what your door jam is like. Most door jams are usually at least of what's referred to as a five-quarter stock material. So it's going to be a nominal inch and a quarter. Older jams may be up to a full two inches. What needs to happen if you're installing this, or especially if you've got a professional, they're going to look at it and let you know whether the jam itself is substantial to the point of not only holding the weight, but maintaining you've got enough grip for the screws to attach to. In many cases, with block construction, brick construction, the installers of these gates will apply them mounted directly to the brick or the block. They are decorative gates, and you have the option of opening and closing those and latching them from the inside uh, as opposed to exterior only. So it's not a bank vault door. It's not going to secure from the outside. It will still secure from the inside. So my recommendation to you, one, is before you buy anything or have anything made, is that you call whoever's going to install the door out and have them look at this and be certain of what you need so that you are fully assessing the cost, because the cost may be far more than just having that particular security gate made. Now, I want to go back on a a comment I made regarding my reservations about these. Many locations around the country will prohibit these from being installed because of the life safety code exit purposes from the building. You need to be able to get out of the house if there's a fire. You have windows that have to meet certain egress requirements from each bedroom, certain sizes, 
And you certainly need to maintain these doors in that same situation so that you're not trapped if there's smoke or fire within the home. So I want to caution you, Amanda, and everybody else is thinking about installing some type of security gate to be sure that it meets your local fire department criteria and building code criteria and that you don't endanger yourself or someone else in that home. Very good. And we've got a, another email, and again, it comes to us from our newest affiliate, and that is WKAC 1080 AM, serving Huntsville and Athens and Alabama and also southern Tennessee. And this question, Ken, is one that we seem to get more and more, and that's a possible conversion involving taking something and turning it from electric to gas. Well, we do. Frequently, we see it going the other direction. That's one reason I thought this was of interest to bring to the air. This comes to us from Juanita in Athens, Alabama. She says, I just started listening to the show, and I hope you can help. We have a 20-year-old electric range. My husband and I have taken cooking classes. I'm glad to hear that and are really getting into cooking. So it seems to be a good hobby for a lot of people these days. Since we use gas stoves for cooking in class, we realize we prefer gas. We live in the country, and we do not have natural gas available. There is no LP gas to the house. It's all electric. What do we need to consider to change to gas cooking, and is this very expensive? Well, Juanita, I'm pleased to tell you that this might be your lucky day. You're going to get information that a lot of people would prefer to hear from me, and that is you're going the right direction as far as reducing cost. Frequently, the question is I want to get away from gas cooking or gas appliances, and I want to move to all electric. And for those of you listening saying, well, what's the difference? Well, it can mean the difference in that case of you having to completely upgrade your electrical service, do a fair amount of work, even the power company, come in and change the meter base on the outside of the home. That usually cost a few thousand dollars to have all of that work done, depending on where you live. But Juanita, in your case, the good thing is that you already have the electrical capacity for a gas cooktop, a gas range, I mean electric, and you're going to consume much less in electricity when you change it to a gas unit. Now, what you are going to have to do is have some mod- an electrician modify either the existing 220 circuit to the range or uh, simply pull another circuit in or find uh, appropriate power nearby because most gas ranges require 120 volts, and that's for your clock and timers and a few other things that's on it, but they don't have the high demand or the high usage or need that 220-volt power that the electric range does. The other thing that you will have to have done is you're going to have to have an LP tank installed for pro- or propane tank, and I'm not aware of any place that I've ever traveled or been around the country where those are not readily available. Most of the tanks will be leased to you by your local gas provider. As long as you buy gas from them, uh, they continue to provide the tank. In many locations, you do have the option of actually purchasing the tank. Then you can shop around for your gas each time you have it filled. So I recommend that you bring one of the gas companies out, show them what you're looking to do, find an appropriate place that meets codes in your area to place that tank away from foundation vents, away from doors, away from windows. There are code criteria for that, and figure out how it will be piped into your kitchen. But when it's all said and done, I think you'll find this is far less costly than having for others that have to upgrade the electrical service to go the other way around. So I wish you well in this venture. If you have any other questions, just give us a call on the show or go back to the website. You obviously have found that. And, Juanita, we thank you for listening. Very good. Uh, and and her question, as I mentioned, is emblematic of one that we get a lot. I know a lot of folks are looking at uh, different areas, uh, and, and you can – you hear this now being pitched by the different utilities and energy providers, and that is the difference. And one of the ones that I've heard a lot of ads for recently, hot water heaters, and urging people to change from an electric hot water heater to a gas hot water heater. Well, in many environments, and right now, especially if you are on uh, natural gas, it is 
far more economical to heat your hot water with natural gas than it is even with LP or with line voltage electric with, through, through the grid. And that's one reason you'd see that. And people have asked me, well, why do power companies want to encourage us to save energy? Well, folks, they're making about all the money they can based on the power plant capacity that they have. And what they realize is if we can't be more energy efficient in our usage, they're going to have to build power plants. And power plants cost billions of dollars and take years and years to get permitted and to get this through the system and then to get up and running and online. So this is a very lengthy and financially demanding process. And it's wise for the energy companies to do both of what they're doing. One, suggest that we conserve energy, but also to help us, not just suggest it, but to show us ways and to tell us how we might use less electricity. In the long run, we all benefit, and that's the game plan. All of us should benefit as we move forward. Well, and you hear stories that are quite common at this time of year where they're looking at, particularly in areas like the southwest and the west, where they're going to have to deal with some type of management of the electrical supply, particularly if some very warm weather continues with rolling blackouts. They just right now don't have the capacity. The capacity is not there. In some cases, it's in the generating source, and also it's in the grid, the lines, just to transfer, to get all that power from one place to the other. Many of us, many of you listening out there are old enough as well that you have seen what's happened when we have not only the, the, the roaming, the changing blackouts or brownouts that we have, but you see what happens when the grid gets overloaded and the whole east coast of the country, the Midwest or the West Coast is down for hours. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. If you have a question about your home inside or out, you can always reach Ken at 1-800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? You can call Ken the Contractor if you have a question at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Along with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, I'm Jim Britt. We're here at weekends at this time, helping you deal with the issues that are important to today's homeowner. You can also email us your questions through our website. That is KenTheContractor.com. But let's go back to the phones right now. Again, our contact number is 800-614-2975. And joining us next is... Kathy. Hi, Kathy. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Hi, Ken. How are you? Good, thank you. How can I help you? Well, thank you so much for taking my call. Sure. Um, I was calling because I have an older house, and it has two stairwells, and one is not in use. And as you know, older houses don't have much storage. So I'd like to take the stairwell out and reconnect the floor joists to be able to put in two closets. Is that like a major deal? Do I need to have a Class A contractor, or can I have... Friends who build decks and stuff do that. Well, you should not be involving any structural walls of any kind. Uh, the, the structural opening has already been created to accommodate that stair. What you're looking to do is to take the stairs, the, the stringer, the risers, the treads out and create a ceiling in at least that lower floor, correct? And then a floor in the upper area? Right. So you're, that way you have two closets, one at both floor levels. That's correct. Okay. And depending on where you live, the the building department may require a permit. This is something that homeowners can do that doesn't necessarily take a a Class A or B contractor, but you may still require a permit. The main thing you've got to be certain of, since you're constructing more than a ceiling joist, meaning you've got a load-bearing floor at the second level, is that the rim joist, that's what goes around the wall, are properly anchored and secured into the other part of the structure. You don't want to just have fasteners go into old plaster. If you're in an old house, you probably have plaster. Uh, or even if you've got drywall, you want to be sure that it is well anchored and properly anchored into what would be the floor joist 
already around that opening that creates the the hole in the floor. And as long as that as long as that occurs, then you create a very sound floor and you fill that in with joists that will become your ceiling support below and your floor support above, and you'd be fine with that. Okay, it's got it's the it was where an original old stairwell was. We just rebuilt it because it had those old tiny radius steps. Mm-hmm. So it would be opening into uh, basically a six by six solid oak beam that had like hand dowels through it. Okay. Do yeah, you are in an older house, so. But I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, please. I was going to say, just be certain that the rim joists that support the main ceiling or floor joists are properly anchored into those boards that run around the perimeter, those beams. That will be, that'll be sound. Again, this was a structural opening created for a stair. All you're doing is filling that hole in. And okay. the key will be to be certain that it is properly anchored. If not, somebody could get hurt because when you start storing things on a floor, especially if you're going to go in there and put boxes, so you're putting dead files, old books or whatever, you can easily have uh, several hundred pounds to maybe even a thousand pounds over that floor space if you're stacking something floor to ceiling. That's why it becomes extremely important. It's not just an aisleway or a hallway that you're walking across. Okay. But that's the only that's okay. the only thing I'd really caution you about, and in your particular area you may want to check with the code officials. That's that's really minor work, but in some localities they require permit for things that are minor, others they may draw a line at $1,000 or structural items along those lines. Okay. But Great. certainly, people, I would answer your question this way, too. If they're qualified, if they're licensed contractors to build decks and so forth, then they certainly should understand the basis about good, solid framing. Okay. All righty. Thank you so much. Take okay. care. Huh? Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you, Kathy. We do appreciate your call. Don't forget, if you'd like to join us, our contact number is 800-614-2975. That's one of the ways you can get your questions to Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, or you can email them to our website, kenthecontractor.com. And this one comes to us from Walt. He is in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and he listens to our program on WEEU 830 AM in Reading, Pennsylvania. And his question is, Ken, do I need to remove the brick on my home to replace the old windows with new vinyl framed windows. Well, Walt, I, I'm here to tell you that you don't want to remove the brick. You're going to spend a lot of money. You're going to create some problems that you really don't want to create. If you have a very old-style window, it's going to be even easier than some of the newer ones. When I say that, meaning windows that may have been put in, say, 30 years ago that had an integral nailing fin or flange, As a part of that, some of the old-style aluminum windows and even some of the earlier versions of vinyl windows did not have removable nail fins, and today many still do not. But what you're going to find is that, first, if you're hiring a professional, they will have the tools to take those windows out, to measure the openings first, and to install a retrofit window that leaves you airtight, watertight, and that looks good and seals around the brick and the framework. They may have to do some modification to the framework to allow this to fit properly. just depends on your openings. If you're doing this yourself, it can be more cumbersome, especially to get those those nail fins out, meaning the window is placed against the woodwork, then it was secured to the woodwork, and then the brick veneer was installed later. And you may have two different types of construction. So I'm dealing with brick veneer right now over wood frame. If you do this yourself, you want to be sure that you have your replacement windows in hand. Certainly, you don't want to go taking all these windows out. You want to remove the sashes, and then you're going to find that you're going to be cutting out the old jams that are there. 
and it may take a little more work than you anticipate depending on the type of nail flange or fin that you have. If you happen to have a window that's simply set in the opening with surface screws mounted in between the tracks, which are typical of some of the older styles, then it's going to be pretty easy for you to pull out. So my recommendation is to take a window that's relatively small, easy to deal with, pull the sash out, top-bottom sash, and see how easy it is to remove it. Then you might want to make the call at that point, am I ready to call in a pro or do I want to go ahead and tackle this myself? And even at that, I suggest you do one window at a time. So if you run into an issue, an unusual framing method when the house was built, you are ready to cope with that and you only have one opening that you have to be concerned with from a weather standpoint. Something that many people can do themselves, but for a lot of us out there, we're saying this is just a little more involved than I want to deal with. Let's hire a pro to take care of this. And that will be especially true if you have a window in a double-width brick wall. Don't know the age of your home, but if it's old enough that it's a double-width brick wall and uh, it happened to have a steel frame window set in place, which was typical of some of the 40s, the late 30s, even into the 50s, that has a flange that was the brick was actually laid around that window. That will have to be cut out, literally, in order to get that steel out. You start tearing brick out, you're going to have a huge expense. You just don't need to go there. So I'd be cautious about what you do. Again, this is the kind of thing that some of us can do, but if you're uncomfortable with it, I think you're going to be money ahead by hiring a professional window company that is involved daily on retrofit. You're going to save some dollars in the long run, and your brickwork's still going to look pretty good. Yeah, and that's one of those issues where you're working on a project where you've got an asset, which is that brick. That's very expensive, as you know, in this day and age. It is, and you hate to see brickwork, at least I do, look like it has been repaired. It could be very evident that every window was taken out. If you start toothing brick or pulling that out, the mortar's not going to match. It's not going to be weathered. Even if you can salvage the brick, not going to look very good. And that's the reason I caution you. I really wouldn't go there. I'd look at hiring a pro first. Do you have a question for Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor? Reach us at 800-614-2975. And don't forget, you can also friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. Or you can email your questions to our website, KenTheContractor.com. Don't forget, at that website, you'll find a whole bunch of useful home improvement information. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Have a question for Ken? You can give us a call at 800-614-2975. That's anytime. 800-614-2975. Or you can email questions to us. We're going to go down south to Alabama to start out with a couple of emails here. There we are. This one comes to us from Phyllis in Decatur, Alabama. It says, my husband and I are considering building our first home. Well, Phyllis, congratulations to you. We've lived in an apartment for four years, and I'm ready. We've talked with several local home builders. They offer different types of construction. Some are what they call stick-built. Others offer modular or panelized construction. Is one better than the other? The modular appears to be a little less in cost, but we are a bit confused about all these different types of construction. I appreciate any clarification on this. Well, Phyllis, it's no wonder that you and a lot of others are confused, not only about the overall type of construction for homes, but so many other products that are out there today because we're bombarded with options. And I am glad that you're looking at those options and you're talking to multiple builders because I recommend this on a constant basis, especially if you really don't have anything preset or predetermined in terms of what type of construction you're looking for. I do suggest you start to narrow that down, though, to make your life a little bit easier and a little less stressful 
as you talk to these builders, and hopefully the information I share with you will be helpful. Let me describe to you basically the differences in these types of construction, and I would hope the builders have done a little bit of that. The modular that you talk about to begin with, you say is a little less costly, is something that is pre-manufactured, if you will. It's not site-constructed. And today, I have to tell you and everybody else that I take nothing away from modular builders. They're no different than stick for our frame builders, individual piece at a time, on-site builders. Years ago, there was a huge difference in the way they were constructed and the quality of construction. But some modular companies out there today will produce quality equal to what you can produce by building it on-site. And in some cases, it may even be better because it's built in a controlled environment. So these are things you have to make decisions on by examining the technical data, the literature, the plans, and ask proper questions. And if you're not really skilled at it, you may want to hire a local consultant, an architect, or somebody that can help you work your way through this to make an informed decision. Modular construction can be very, very well done and can be very affordable for you and for other people. Stick-built is no different, but it means that it is built one piece at a time on site, and that is the traditional way homes have been built across this country. You'll find many more builders that do traditional stick-built construction on site than modular construction. And then others will have what's called, and I think you referenced the term, panelized construction, which follows suit with pre-engineered or prefabricated roof trusses, where your home wall panels, both interior and exterior framing, are constructed in a factory, much like roof trusses are. They are built to a particular set of plans, and they are brought out to the site, and then they are erected one wall at a time, not one stick or one two-by-four at a time, but one wall at a time and assembled. Part of what the industry's tried to do here over the years is reduce the labor factor on the homes, reduce the time that it takes to build the home in the field, and at the same time try and control some of the, the temperature moisture and other elements that can create problems on traditionally built homes. When you're putting walls up, they're exposed to rain. Your floor is exposed to rain. You end up with some twisting and cupping and splitting of wood over time. That's always a possibility. That's not to say that these other methods do not have some degree of exposure once these components reach the field, but they are the opportunities are reduced, I'll put it like that. So all of these can be good construction, good quality construction. They can also be minimal and fairly poor. It's up to you and a consultant, if you need one, to help you evaluate the builder, their background, their experience. Always talk to customers of each of these contractors and see what kind of feedback you get from them. If they'll allow you in their home, look at the quality of construction. If you're dealing with a modular or panelized system, ask perhaps to tour the factory or see some videos or at least see some pictures of local construction where those products have been used. You have a lot of homework ahead of you. This is a major investment for most people in this country. A home is the largest single investment they'll ever make. I commend you for taking these steps, but I don't want you to be in a rush. I know you're anxious. You're ready to get out of the apartment. But spend a little more time with this. You'll be very happy with your investment and the choice of builder that you have uh, signed on at the same time. So good luck to you, Phyllis. That is very exciting. I think a lot of folks, if they have not been able to build their own home someday and have some input into the construction of it, they would hope to be able to do that. Yeah, it really is. We have a feature on our show each week called the App of the Week, and it's where Ken gets to play with little gadgets and toys. And uh, many of them are very helpful in his particular line of work, and some of them are just fun. Some of them are just fun. This one today happens to be very helpful 
It's a quick calculator. It's called Handy Construction Calculators. Now, this one is really designed for people that are more serious about their construction. It's a great professional app, but for do-it-yourselfers, you'll find this very useful. It's not one all of you want to put in your phone, also because it comes with a little bit of expense. This app costs $7.99. I'm usually bringing you free apps. But this one has a lot of value to it for the money because it's not only doing calculations for you, but it's showing you sections or plans. If you're trying to calculate how to build a set of steps, for example, you're looking at the layout for the stringer, for your risers, for your treads. It will not only let you key in certain dimensional data, but it will also give you quantities and it's going to give you a drawing of what you have keyed in. This is where most apps fall short, and I have others that I use that are just simply quick calculations. But if you need one that will show you a picture or for professional builders to show the client something instantly, you just calculated a patio or a roof area or maybe a wall section, and you want to show them, you can do that and show the quantity and be talking to them a little bit about cost. So, again, it's called Handy Construction Calculator. costs $7.99. Uh, it has been downloaded by tens of thousands of people, but again, it's not for everybody. It features 58 calculators and different calculations of individual types for specific purposes, from foundations to wall sections to stairs, wall framing. It will give you length. It's going to give you width. It's going to give you area. It's going to give you a lot of very relevant information to your construction, and you're also able to forward or send this and save this in your computer system. So if you're looking to do roof framing, Wall framing, walls, floors, ceilings, electrical, deal with some electrical problems with foundations, masonry, whether it's block, brick, concrete, uh, again, area volumes, measurements, even landscaping, you'll find handy construction calculators to be quite useful. Go to the website, kenthecontractor.com, for more information and to find out how to download this. And from kenthecontractor.com, time for one more quickie email. Paula writes us from Allentown, Pennsylvania. Last year, our water line from the well to the house froze. This was our first winter in the house. It's about 35 years old, and we are new to the cold winter climate. Any ideas on how to prevent this from happening again this year? I don't want to deal with without water. Well, Paula, you're not by yourself, but it sounds like you come from a warmer climate and you've moved into one where the climate can be a little on the chilly side in the winter. And what I want you to look at, one, is first where the line comes up out of the house, assuming you're on a crawl space. Be sure that line is insulated. And if it's not, that's the first place to stop. I start. I would go from the house down into the ground, be sure all those pipes are properly concealed, properly insulated. And then you may want to do a little bit of spot checking, see how deep below the surface of the ground that line is buried as it moves from the house down towards your water source towards the well itself. If the line is very shallow all the way back to the well, that may be a bigger issue. But what I want you to check at least immediately, and you can send me an email with some response, is to be sure that that line's insulated. If not, you want to take care of that. There's heat tape and other items that I can move you into that direction on that will do other things. But this is basic. This is simple. And with a house this old, it may not have any insulation at all. Good place to start. And it doesn't mean it's expensive either. No, this is something you can do yourself. You can observe it yourself, and you can fix it yourself. If you need to get beyond this, I'll give you some more pointers on a follow-up. That wraps up this hour of Ken the Contractor. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or forward questions to his website, kenthecontractor.com.